Welcome to the Social Behavioral Coffee Hour, the Center for Social and Behavioral Science podcast series at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Our goal is to provide a platform for guests to discuss and explore themselves, their disciplines, and the broader context in which they research, work, and live. This includes the good and the bad, and the beautiful and the messy. We aim to discuss human nature and how to build a better world using behavioral science. And if we can, we'd like to have a little fun along the way. The following is a conversation with Dr. Ish Minifee, Assistant Professor of Business Administration at the University of Illinois in the Geese College of Business. In this episode, Ish talks about his experience seeing how companies in South Africa differed in their social messaging around apartheid and how that shaped his interest in corporate social responsibility. He and I discuss what corporate social responsibility is, how it's measured, and the trend of corporations taking an increasing stance on social issues and whether or not those stances are actually impactful. All right. I'm joined today by Ish Minifee for our conversation where we're going to talk about corporate social, corporate social responsibility. Ish, thank you so much for joining me today. Pete, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this topic and the concepts and the issues that are related to it. So Ish, can you tell me a little bit about, first of all, what is corporate social responsibility and how did you get interested in it as a researcher? Yeah. <laughs> yep, corporate social responsibility is a firm's actions, initiatives that are aimed towards benefiting stakeholders beyond the their shareholders. Um, stakeholders such as your employees, your local communities that you operate in, um, those actions that are for societal benefit at the end of the day. So beyond the economic benefit of the firm, beyond just profit seeking, it's what a firm is doing to help out <laughs> governments and non-governmental organizations and civil society members would want them to do, like leveraging their resources for societal good. And I got started on this way back when. <laughs> so I guess I've always been really interested in how firms have addressed societal needs, even in high school, going into undergrad here at the University of Illinois and then definitely in the doctoral program. And my first research project or main research project was on the establishment of corporate foundations by US firms. So these philanthropic arms. So again, what donations are you giving in the realm of education, in the realm of health in the realm of environment and just looked at the overarching trajectory of corporate foundations and society. But I really got into this topic when I actually went to South Africa as mm -hmm. a second year doctoral student, helping to lead a study abroad trip with a professor I had worked with from undergrad. And I just learned about the issue of apartheid, you know, black-white segregation in South Africa. And I just raised the question, like, what were businesses doing during that time, you know, 40s all the way until um, apartheid formally ended in 94? And talking to the tour guides, like, well, some firms did a couple of good things, others didn't. And that just led me to down this rabbit hole <laughs> and really looking at, you know, corporate social initiatives in the context of South Africa. And I think it's just spawned and shaped my research interests for the past decade, really. 
And so when you went down that rabbit hole and you found that there were different <laughs> responses from some outfits versus others, what, what did yeah. you find? Well, I would have assumed that every firm would have done something. Are we going to actually take care of our um, black colored and Indian employees relative to our white employees? That's the categorization scheme, or at least that was in South Africa during that time period. And you definitely had a number of US firms that did so. There was this code of conduct that was developed, the Sullivan principles, the six or seven principles to actually improve the workplace. And so ensuring or helping black employees to rise up in the ranks or providing training, providing educational resources for community members, so the families of those employees. So that was really interesting to see that some firms were engaging in this, whereas others were pretty silent on the matter. And I'd say of the 350, at least US firms that were operating there, I'd say roughly half of them actually signed on to the principles, the other half, they just continue business as usual for one reason or another. So it's really interesting to go into the archives and look at that from a US perspective, but then also see that there was the European code of conduct during this time. So some European firms are also doing something similar to what um, American firms are doing. But again, very hit or miss. And I would have assumed that given the issue, given all of the activism surrounding apartheid, that more firms would have stepped up. Why do you think some firms didn't? I think at that time, we lived in an era where business and politics did really mix. And so a lot of folks actually look at how firms responded to apartheid as one of the first forays into like actually um, addressing social issues beyond the home country. So U.S. Mm -hmm. firms being in South Africa, typically it's you don't get involved in governmental issues with you know civil society members. You're just a firm um, operating there. You're there to conduct your business, you know, make your profits, make sure you're abiding by laws established by the, that government as a host country and also your home country laws. But business and politics didn't mix. And even I even came across a number of um, letters, you know, between. Um, Leon Sullivan, the orchestrator of the Sullivan Principles, the uh, reverend, but also he became a um, member of the General Motors Board of Directors. Letters to him from executives saying, we're not really one to step into politics. Hmm. And that's just how we've operated over the years. And it's that's very much different than what we see today and how a number of firms are very much taking public stances on different issues. But back then, and so, so from that perspective, it made sense that we just stay out. We don't want to ruffle mm. any feathers with host country governments. Yeah, it's important to understand, I think, then the historical context, because it does mm -hmm. seem like, you know, nowadays we are inundated with messages uh, from <laughs> companies that are trying to signal various virtues that they have, um, you know, yeah, maybe for absolutely. maybe for 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 profit or for truly altruistic reasons to be unpacked. Um, what was going on in your mind as you were 
there in South Africa and you were um, like, what history did you have that kind of brought you to that point that made this such a, a really interesting question for you? Well, I didn't know much about apartheid going over there back in 2012. Literally, I was asked to help lead this trip three weeks before it started. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm cool with the free trip to another country. I love to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I enjoy interacting with this professor. Um, but being there and just being in different cities, um, being in Johannesburg, being in Soweto, being in um, Durban, Port City, I mean, just really seeing how, although apartheid ended, in 1994, so nearly 20 years before I, 20 years I, before I went, you still saw the the effects, and you, and I guess I compared it to like U.S. You know, <clears throat> Jim Crow slavery. You still see the effects, you know, years, decades down the line, and even to this day, 2022, you still hear about some of the ramifications or the implications of apartheid just in general in the economy um, for different segments of the population. And so for me, just learning that history at that time and comparing it to the US and our history with mm. black white segregation became mm. really interesting for me to at least dive into this context and then being in business, just asking the question, well, what role did businesses have during that time? Right. And what were you kind of studying before? Or what were your interests before that kind of pivotal moment? Like, yeah, <laughs> very different, <laughs> actually. So I, as I mentioned, I had the corporate foundations project that started off in my first year, whereas the South Africa project started off in my second, going into my third year. I was also working with some marketing faculty members. I ended up going to India after my first year and looked at how microfinancing and self-help groups helped women um, overcome some of the social and gender-oriented barriers in the country. And so it was a very eye-opening project um, from a marketing and entrepreneurship perspective, but I definitely shifted gears once I went to South Africa and then came back and started to put things together you know as a second year student thinking about like well what's my dissertation eventually going to be right <laughs> i need to do something maybe there is something in this realm and i came across you know this notion of how do firms respond to social movement activism right right and is that where like is that kind of the the origin of of csr or does csr have uh, corporate social responsibility uh does that come from some other place? I'm just kind of wondering like where in the yep. historical timeline this idea blossomed. I think that CSR has been around for a very long time, just different iterations of it. I think huh. it might've started off as just business philanthropy in the late 1800s, early 1900s. The term itself isn't really formalized until the first half of the, 1900s where okay we're actually starting to see very specific initiatives beyond just giving a fifty thousand dollar check to yeah. an organization say do what you want with this but you're actually creating initiatives and i'd say in the 60s and 70s 
you start to see academics starting to talk about, well, this is the term corporate social responsibility. This is what it is. And this is what we shall deem. And that's stuck with us for the past 60 years or so. Mm-hmm. And again, typically we were talking about that in a domestic context. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that firms were doing things in the host countries that they were operating in. But I think that just the South Africa case itself was such a pivotal moment in um, global history mm-hmm. where you start to see firms really be put on display in the sense like activists in the international community, they're collectively calling for firms to step up. What are you going to do? And so firms may have already been doing things. And that's kind of what I saw in some of the letters for firms that didn't sign on to the Sullivan principles. They were saying, we've already been doing these things. Mm. Um, No one's just known about it. Mm. Uh, No one's put an official label on it. Uh, And now we have CSR in an international sense, even though I'm pretty sure it was already out there. If you had to guess, Ish, why do you feel like, you know, that was such a pivotal time? Like, like you mentioned, there had been Mm -hmm. other forms of CSR, different iterations of it historically. What do you think made this time in history like a really unique turning point? Yep. I say the level of activism surrounding Mm -hmm. the issue. And so I think about there's there have been a lot of histories on like firms, particularly U.S. firms, um, operations in Germany during the Nazi era, like were they engaging in bad practices? Were they trying to help um, Jews? What did that look like? And I would love to dive into those histories. I haven't done so just yet. Um, but you didn't really see a lot of activism like in the U.S. surrounding that versus fast mm-hmm. forward to the 50s, 60s, you start to see this whole civil rights push, um, again, thinking about Black-white segregation here at home, and then a number of individuals saying, hey, it's not just the U.S. that's facing this particular issue, Mm -hmm. it's also South Africa, and folks who look like us across the pond um, are also facing a similar um, issue, so we need to step up and we need to put pressure on firms to do something about this. So you start to see some of the first activist campaigns in the 60s, at least going back to the digging that I've done in the archives, like Chase Bank, you know, protests. So you you got civil rights issues here, got those protests, um, but you also have protests against corporations for their operations in South Africa. And so I do think that the activist component mattered a lot during this time period because that's what really put things on display from Mm. a media perspective and the fact that you had the south african government and the police actually gunning down kids um the uh, two massacres one in 1960 where a number of individuals were killed and then one in 1976 where particularly youths, kids were actually killed um, Mm. in a protest. And that led to international media picking this up. Like, yeah, apartheid's been going on since the late 1940s, but it's 1976 that really kicks this off from an international perspective. And now firms are really forced to do something, say something beyond just 
dealing with the activists who have been pressuring them for the past, you know, 10 years or so. Right, right. So it seems like maybe there's a a general kind of cultural awareness of what some of yeah. these firms uh, are capable of and maybe what the impact is that they have on our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and that, that actually raises such a, a bigger question, like how, how powerful are corporations, particularly when we're talking about their operations in other countries, can they mm -hmm. actually make change? Can they mm -hmm. actually push back against the government? And mm -hmm. I would say during that time period and even onwards to today, you still, I think most of the change that firms can make is actually within the firm and their employees right. and the communities that they operate in. It's really tough to say something uh, to a government because you're, again, worried about the backlash, whether that's higher taxes, whether that's you know, your operations being taken over by the government. So I think that's why a lot of firms tread fairly lightly um, mm -hmm. when it comes to like what can firms actually do. Right. It's likely going to be in the workplace. And even that might still ruffle some feathers. And right. so interestingly with the, the South African government, it was actually okay with firms incorporating the Sullivan principles, you know, and doing things for right. black colored and Indian employees. I'm pretty sure not every government <laughs> then at that time in that time period and now would be open to those types of things. Yeah, I, I like that you bring this up um, because it seems like there are a few different ways in which corporations can be, quote, socially responsible. Um, yeah. So there's the relationship that they have with uh, kind of contemporary social issues. Um, there's the relationship that corporations have with their own employees. And maybe there's like the relationship that they have with um, like public policies. Um, I guess that's kind of you know, related to the first thing, but what are the different like areas of corporate social responsibility? And, and how do we think about, you know, corporations as being responsible uh, across those domains? Yeah, so you are now starting to see academics and investors start to break this down into different categories, different buckets, because corporate social responsibility is such a huge issue. Like what yeah, does yeah. it actually cover? And now you have this notion of ESG. So environmental, social governance. Mm -hmm. So from an environmental perspective, are we addressing climate change or clean water in different places? You think about McDonald's, for example, and its operations. Um, ensuring clean water in different locations, um, Australia, India, others. Socially, I think that's where we start to get at like discrimination. So whether it's racial, whether it's like LGBTQ rights, that would fall into that bucket. Um, and again, that can be for your employees, that can also be for um, the communities that they operate in. I'd say abortion rights, for example, might fall into that. And what we've seen even this year in the U.S. with firms saying we're going to send our employees, if they have services that are needed, we're going to send them to the next state um, that's um, in favor of abortions. So that will fall into that right. category. And then governance might be so more so, well, what are you doing to ensure that the top management team is reflective of the population that you're 
actually mm. operating in the community that you're operating in. So are we again hiring people who are representative and who can speak to some of the issues that individuals and society face? And so I think we're now looking at this ESG frame and a firm can try to tackle all three. They can just tackle one. It just, it's up to the firm. And I think that's where a lot of folks are now moving when you think about CSR, because it, it was, and it is kind of a broad, all-encompassing term, right. any social action for the benefit of societal members. Right, right. Yeah. So um, how does the average person, uh, like myself, think about CSR? So I, I guess what I wonder is, like, when I'm thinking about buying something, and this is the way I think of it, and I'm wondering if you can comment or, or critique on this, like, I'm buying something, and I want to know that the company is a quote-unquote good company. Uh, I want to know that if I'm buying something that, you know, the company's being responsible in some way, and maybe it kind of makes me a little bit more inclined to purchase, to spend from, uh, to spend money uh, on a company that I know is doing some kind of, you know, bigger good. Is this like a yeah. common, is this like the way in which people often think about companies or do they more just kind of want to know about some of these other issues or do they not care at all? Like, I wonder how much I'm an anomaly there and I'm, I probably don't <laughs> think about it as much as, you know, um, other people, but it's, it's a thing that I think about. And I, I, I actually don't also have good ways of knowing this it's kind of like yeah <laughs> a, it, it's kind of like a big nebulous like uh, i don't yeah. know like what is the current state of uh taco bell what is the current state of uh you know um you know the, the place where i buy clothing online like what is the current state and i don't really know no absolutely <laughs> great questions so you're definitely not an anomaly i think we are witnessing more of a movement towards consumer power. And it's this notion of the boycott versus the boycott. So mm. boycott, if a firm is engaging in controversial issues, then we're going to um, send our dollars elsewhere. We're going to refuse to buy or purchase products from that firm. Boycott is the flip side. And we see that a firm is actually stepping up, doing well, it is clear in its um, mission. Um, to take care of environmental and social needs uh, mm -hmm. for our society, then we're going to, even if the price is higher, we're still going to buy from that firm. And I think we are starting to see a lot of that. And right. when I teach my international business courses, I see my students talking about this, like, yeah, we're not going, to, this firm was in the news and this firm is controversial. So I give the example of, Firestone. I teach a case on Firestone and its operations in Liberia in the 80s and 90s and during a civil war and how some would say Liberia left, Firestone left its Liberian employees to fend for themselves. They evacuated the American expats, left the Liberian employees, then came back and it's seen as they were all about profits. Mm -hmm. It's a story that's historical uh, this doesn't come out until 2014, and I'm showing this to my students in 2020, 2021, 2022, and they're like, oh, this is a problematic company. We're not going to buy from them. <laughs> or, right. you know, when I think about tires, I'm not going to purchase Firestone or Bridgestone tires. And so it does come down to awareness. Now, that awareness is difficult unless it's just 
front page of the news, yeah. all over our social media feed. Um, from a positive or a negative perspective about a firm, there's not a lot of just information out there where we can just readily, I can go to this one website right. and say, oh, Taco Bell is doing well or doing bad. McDonald's, same thing. It's right. really difficult. It takes individuals, particularly using Twitter, I think living in this social media world that we do now, um, you think about the Russia-Ukraine war and how right. a number right. of firms have suspended operations, some have completely left, right. some are still staying. You saw a number of activists go on Twitter and say, hey, you all should boycott this firm because they're still operating in Russia right, right. now, despite this war. And so right. that's on us as you know, listeners <laughs> and individuals saying, oh, well, I'm on Twitter. I can see these things. I'm scrolling through my newsfeed and this pops up. That's where mm -hmm. the awareness comes in. Yeah. But as far as a publicly accessible database, right. it's really difficult to get access to the good thing and the, and the bad things that firms are doing. So this kind of is frustrating as a, a person yeah. who likes numbers, <laughs> oh. right? Because it seems like you. so much of what our like understanding of different, you know, corporations and whether they're being responsible or not is just based on anecdotes about the conversations yeah. that are being had. Mm -hmm. And it seems like from this conversation, there's not really any good way of like tracking, you know, just in the same way when you go and you buy something on Amazon, like lots of products will have different ratings and reviews of Correct. maybe the, the seller um, or maybe the, you know, parameters of the particular, you know, thing that you're buying, you know, is it a good quality? Is it a good price, et cetera? And people can rate, but there's not really like a way of, of measuring and tracking the quote unquote, like level or the follow through of responsibility among some of these um, corporations. Is that, yeah, it's, is that something anybody's <laughs> working on? <laughs> can, like, I think we need more of it. Yeah. <laughs> So, absolutely. So I completely agree with that sentiment. I think it's unfortunate that we don't have enough information or public sources. So when I think about like CSR more generally, there are a couple of organizations that maintain proprietary data. So I, as a researcher, would have to go in, purchase it, it's thousands of dollars. So KLD as an organization where they talk about CSR strengths and CSR um, weaknesses or controversies. Yeah. There's um, Thomson Reuters, a major um, organization, have a platform, Asset4, does something very similar. So all of these different numeric ratings of firms from a social perspective, mm. it's tough to get that information publicly. Interestingly, uh, interestingly in the context of BLM, because it's been so widespread, not just here in the US, but globally, you have seen a number of media outlets like the Washington Post trying to track and analyze firms' commitments. Have they kept those commitments over the past couple of years? There's also a project um, called the Corporate Racial Equity Tracker. Hmm. So over the past couple of years, what have firms done with regard to, you know, mass incarceration, or what have they done with regards to, again, hiring and speaking out. And so there is 
there are a couple of things that are being done, at least from a BLM perspective. But holistically, I wish we had more folks working on this. I'm mm -hmm. trying to be one of those people. Hmm. Uh, um, particularly, I have my work on BLM. Happy to talk about that. But I'm also thinking about like corporate sociopolitical activism, as it's now being called, um, going beyond CSR, some would say. Um, what does that look like, not just from one particular issue like BLM, but all these other issues that we are seeing that are polarizing and that are, you know, on the news screen, on the TV screen, um, yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah, and I'd love to include some of the the links to these, um, you know, upcoming metrics that you've discussed in our in our show notes, um, actually. Absolutely. So I'm just making a note to myself to I'll reach out to you for those. Um, one thing I was wondering, like, has anyone tested or experimented with this? Like, I wonder if anyone has ever, for example, shown like some kind of real or not like corporate social responsibility metric when people are buying products online, for example, or done experiments like, you know, A-B tests showing, you know, that, well, when you provide people with a metric about, you know, the level of corporate social responsibility, let's say adherence, um, or the extent to which, um, you know, they are being responsible, quote unquote, um, but it changes purchasing behavior. Has anyone studied that and are there results and no worries yeah. if this isn't something that, you know, we're, we're familiar with now? Yep. I'm definitely not as familiar with this. It would fall into the realm of marketing. I mm. do believe that there are some marketing researchers who look at um, consumers' responses to corporate social initiatives and activities. And I think the baseline assumption is that yes, for individual consumers are more willing to purchase from those firms. And if they can see the messages, if they believe the messages, it's also mm. the notion of authenticity and mm. what a firm does and what a firm says. And again, marketing scholars know more than I would. <laughs> In this regard, yeah. the, the research is definitely being done over there, not as much in strategy and international business per mm -hmm. se, but to your question, I do think that there is some information out there. Okay. Um, let's talk about uh, the BLM protests of 2020 and the way in yeah. which uh, you think about these from a CSR perspective. Like what insights have we gained from the way in which different companies have handled these protests? Well, it's still very early to tell. And I think we saw a number of firms making statements and making financial commitments. So we're going to donate to the NAACP. We're going to donate to the to equity and justice projects and initiatives run by a variety of organizations. Um, we've also seen some firms acknowledge that, well, we don't know much about the struggle of African-Americans, of Black people in this country, but we are willing to listen, we're willing to learn. And so that's what we saw in summer 2020. It's an open question whether or not many of those firms have actually kept the commitments, you know, mm -hmm. going beyond the public statement, but um, there were uh, metrics out there, and I believe, again, the Washington Post, among other news outlets, suggested that, you know, billions of dollars were committed as mm -hmm. a result of the protests. And primarily, this came in the form of loans, so from banks, particularly mm -hmm. to address 
you know, housing related issues among um, individuals in the black community. Um, but beyond that industry, it's still an open question you know, whether Walmart has actually implemented, you know, concrete and measurable practices. And for me as a researcher, I understand that things take time. I'm glad that we do have an initiative like the Corporate Racial Equity Tracker. And I think that's in its second iteration, I think 2022 version came out earlier this year. And so I think for any of these types of issues or unfortunate events that we have experienced, like we experienced in 2020, I think like we wanna see the immediacy, I know. <laughs> That is um, the reality of definitely among the general public and even myself as an academic, I would like to see the immediate response and initiatives put into place. I know that things take time. And I know when I think about organizations, be it firms, even talk about business schools and how business schools as organizations and some would say corporate entities <laughs> have responded to the protests by um, creating positions such as, you know, associate deans of diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm -hmm. um, things of that sort, or just being really intentional about interacting with um, black students and making sure their needs are met, their well-being is taken care of. I've seen that over the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I think that falls into, again, the broader realm of CSR. As I mentioned, there's also this new-ish notion of socio-political activism, mm -hmm. whereas CSR historically has been seen as fairly neutral. Like, yeah, giving a million dollar grant to an education-related initiative is fine, you know, mm -hmm. for a Walmart or um, another firm to do versus like a Walmart or Nike actually supporting Colin Kaepernick, you know, taking a knee or mm -hmm. making a statement on BLM, that's a risk, right? right? You're actually potentially alienating a large segment of your consumer group. Let's talk about um, the boycott versus boycott. <laughs> yeah, that definitely falls into this realm, what we're seeing right now. And so when I think about BLM, I do think about making those statements is more a form of activism and making those commitments also a form of activism. It's just an open question whether right. or not firms will keep those commitments or was it just for fluff, just for show right. during that time period because everyone else in the industry, you know, was doing it or in the business community was doing it. Mm. The expectation was that they were doing it. Right. Something I'd love to ask you then, um, <laughs> because I think a lot of people, you know, have seen instances uh, or have heard of instances where companies are, you know, behaving in a way that's respectable because of their sort of um, social responsibility initiative. Um, if there's no good way of kind of measuring or tracking where countries kind of, or I'm sorry, where corporations are on these spectrums of, you know, um, good or bad, you know, CSR, I'm wondering, can we like highlight um, from your perspective, what is a real um, kind of corporate exemplar a situation where a corporation really kind of um, offered us as a as offered a good example of what um, effectively implemented CSR is. Great question. I say 
one exemplar that immediately comes to mind is Ben and Jerry's. Mm. And I, I love my ice cream. <laughs> um, it's Ben and Jerry's is a very liberal leaning firm. So we talk about this notion in business academia of liberal versus conservative leaning firms. And mm. a firm like Ben and Jerry's is very much, it stays with its stance on whether it's immigration, pushing back against, that they were pushing back against Donald Trump um, during his presidency and his How policies so? towards, well, just making statements that we live in mm. a society that's open we should be welcoming to immigrants and as a president, you're taking us back decades, centuries mm. in a sense. And so just being open in their statements in that regard, um, being very much open in their statements about BLM as well, even changing, like I can't think of any names of the flavors off the top of my head, but they're, they're really particular about being specific. Like, oh, we got this flavor of the month, as it represents a social issue. Huh. And they're actually in that they're and as a consumer, you see that when you're coming into their store, you're making a purchase, like, oh, well, it's they're making a statement. That's their form of CSR or activism. Right. Um, it's they're not, and they're Ben and Jerry's is probably, you know, making donations, uh, making engaging in initiatives in the community, but when you really just see their product itself. And when you hear them, their executives talk about things, that's an exemplar. Um, another it. would be Patagonia. And I was actually going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the um, basically, it's it is an environmental company. It's like it's we're we're not out here to make profits. We I think the executive just said we're going to give up the the corporate aspect of things, and we're dedicating our resources, the money we make to generate to giving back to the earth <laughs> and some right. would say that's probably the one of the biggest exemplars at least from an environmental perspective and yeah. so uh, that notion of yeah it's really tough to track this again the information is out there in a proprietary sense um mm. i wish there was more public information and again it, it takes us as consumers to you know, read the the business weeks of the world, read the fortunes, because they do list like, oh, the most reputable firms um, generally, or from a CSR perspective, there's a list out there, you know, the top 100 corporate citizens. So that takes us to go into the media. It's not just a matter of like, oh, this is going to be listed on your nightly news. <laughs> right. So this list came out, you know, but yeah, right. that, there are a couple of exemplars out there. I want to come back to Patagonia because I don't know of any other company that's done exactly what they have. Yeah. Um, but before we come back to that, um, we've talked about an instance where a company is behaving in a way that's sociopolitical, where they're, they're kind of taking a stance and there's risk associated with that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, um, are there, from your vantage point, any companies that have done a quote unquote good job? Um, from the conservative side of things? That's a good question. I actually can't think of any firms off the top of my head that would say, I do, when you think about abortion rights, I'm trying to figure out if there have been firms that would say like, no, we're not going to, we're going to take a staunch stance. But 
and, mm. and quite frankly, I've been looking more so at liberal firms. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and it's it's and to that to that point, it's been shown in the research that more liberal leaning firms are willing to take stances and put their values and their views out there mm -hmm. relative to more conservative leaning firms. Right. And almost definitionally, those liberal firms will be the ones mm. who are kind of challenging the status quo. So there's something kind of a little bit more noteworthy um, or reportable there rather than kind of maintaining that status quo. Right. And I know there are firms out there, conservative perspective that have, I just can't think of any up top of my head right now, in all honesty. Yeah. What about, um, what about Patagonia, you think? Um, this is such an interesting case because basically they said, you know, we're not going to, um, you know, all of the profits are going to go into a trust and the trust is made up of, mm -hmm. uh, I think different, um, initiatives that are meant to, um, from, for lack of better words, uh, help planet earth. I mean, mostly mm -hmm. in combating climate change, but also I think there's, um, you know, environmental advocacy, um, initiatives that are in there as well. Um, but all of the money is going to that. And it seems to me like, you know, I don't think we've ever had anything quite like this. And do you think that there is like, what kind of learning opportunities are there for this? Do you think this will work? And do you think that maybe other companies might follow suit in trying something like this? I think it could work when we're talking about entrepreneurs who have started social enterprises or who have shifted from a profit orientation to more of a social enterprise. And once we start, and Patagonia is a relatively big firm, but it's it's not up there on the size and scope and scale of the Walmarts of the world, the Unilevers of the world. And so when I, if we're talking about those types of multinationals of, of that size, I think it's really difficult to see that happening. Right. Um, because of all the different stakeholders involved, because of the staunch, you know, profit orientation that many of these firms started off with. And so mm. when I think about a Patagonia or firms like, like it, it's, it really comes down to who the entrepreneur was, is, and if those values have carried over, you know, throughout the decades to where we would see a shift. So I think it would be a very small shift. And I don't know if we'll see anything like Patagonia anytime soon. It would be great. I think many folks are on board with it, but I think it does take, you know, an entrepreneur who has said, I've made my money. Mm. I've made my money, family's taken care of. And I've always had this altruistic outlook. Mm. Or even uh, talk about pivotal moments, even a pivotal moment may shift me in this direction but i'm i'm comfortable mm -hmm. i think that the the founder patagonia comfortable right now and this is yeah. yeah and just like the values over the decades have been there and like this just seems to be the logical next step i don't think we see a lot of that um among the firms like whether it's um it's a, it starts off as a private firm um really small and then grows in scale, but relative to the, the major corporations of the world today, I think it's really difficult to see that. Yeah, got it. Um, I'm wondering, um, we've already talked about Ben and Jerry's, are there, are there firms that you personally-ish 
not necessarily from a research perspective, <laughs> but from a human perspective that you're like, I like this firm. I like what they're doing. And are there firms that you're like, I don't like what these guys are doing. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah, shop here because of these guys. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. So from a not shop here, I think the, the Firestone <laughs> case has stuck with me as well. Like um, I just got some tires, some new tires put on my car uh-huh. uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not purchasing Bridgestone tires. <laughs> <laughs> like I was, I was very intentional. Yeah. About yeah. That. And typically and to, to your question, typically I'm not, it's, I, and I think about like, Oh, have I actually just focused on, I'm going to buy products from, this firm because they are engaging in something socially or environmentally great. So they're taking a, a good stance. I, I actually say I haven't exercised my consumer power in that regard thus yet, even though I talk about these things, you know, in my classes or just in general, like I recognize mm-hmm. um, when others do so, but for myself, uh, I think I might search out the best prices or just like the best quality of a product and there's also a part of me that um, says well many firms are engaging in good and <laughs> controversial yeah. bad practices but controversial practices right like we, i purchased a lot of things off of amazon some folks have problems with amazon and how it's taken over whether it comes to logistics and what it does for its employees or, or lack thereof we've seen a lot of issues, but I still purchase things from Amazon. I still purchase, I was in uh, Walmart last night shopping for some things. I was in Target last night as well. And uh-huh. both of those firms have had issues. And so I recognize that many firms um, have great elements about them. I recognize that there can be some controversial elements. And I'd say if it's not at, at the fine, like what's egregious, <laughs> Like I actually used to bank with Wells Fargo, um, Mm. for example, and, you know, just the whole notion of like, we're just creating all these fake accounts. I let go of my Wells Fargo account. Like, I think that's Mm. super problematic. And so that, that rubbed me the wrong way. Mm. And so I think if I do come across instances or things that firms do, that's problematic to me, then I would say, I'm not going to buy from them. Yeah. Versus just buying in general, I, I price shop. <laughs> um, and it, it makes me, going back to the question I couldn't answer uh, on conservative um, leaning firms, some would say Chick-fil-A yeah. is a very conservative firm. And I know I have a number of friends who are very much anti Chick-fil-A for its you know stances on abortion, its stances on a lot of things in the realm of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have folks who still eat there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so like that's to, to go back to that question in this conversation, part of the conversation is made me think of that. Like yeah. um, I think Hobby Lobby might also be considered as a conservative firm as well. Right. right. But like, if I need some arts and crafts, I might stop in the Hobby Lobby. <laughs> right. Uh, depending right. on like, what I'm looking for. And so I say I'm more intentional when it comes to not buying than when it comes to just intentionally buying something from a, a firm because they are engaged in a really good social practice. Right. What's the, if I can ask you a very speculative question. Yeah. What do you think is the eventual conclusion of the trend 
where corporations are becoming more political. Ooh, the eventual conclusion. Like, do you I see think, this yeah. <laughs> evolving to a point where companies are, you know, more often and increasingly kind of declaring their stance around certain social issues? And do you think people will continue to increasingly shop in ways that align with their ideological values, for example? Yes, I definitely think so. And so I just at a conference a few weeks ago and someone presented data on this notion of corporate sociopolitical activism from a US perspective and how this has really kicked off since 2008 onwards to today. And it's definitely on the upwards trend. And I think it really takes off in 2016, you know, through 2020 with the presidency of Donald Trump, at least here in the US, where a lot of folks saw things as very polarizing. And so not only do you have you know, the general public being polarized, you have employees um, taking stances and expecting their firms to take stances. And I think that's going to be a staying point moving forward onwards to 2025, 2030, <laughs> where firms will, oh, you took a stance on Russia, and Ukraine, mm -hmm. if another war, um, and then unfortunately there are a number of wars that are ongoing where no one's talking about them, right, no media right. coverage, but if there's another event, let's say next year or in 2025, where it's a lot of media coverage, there's gonna be an expectation that individuals and particularly employees and shareholders will have on these firms to maintain the stance that they took in the past. And so I do think that you're going to see a lot more of this. I do think it is here to stay. There is the notion of, oh, is it again? Is it just rhetoric? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of folks believe that right now. And again, I think it's going to take data and some time to actually determine like, well, 100 firms made statements back in 2020 for BLM. Mm -hmm. Only 30 of them actually stuck to their commitments. Right. Um, it's now 2025, 2026. Um, then that's where you're really going to start to see even more activism. Right. Like, oh, we have the data now. We have someone say we have the receipts. <laughs> right. Um, right. Do anything. And so for me personally, speculatively, I do think that it's here to stay. Got it. Um, I wonder a little bit about um, because some of your research focuses on um, CSR activities in one country versus another country mm -hmm. from the same firm. Um, yeah. <laughs> have, have, what has this kind of taught us about how companies engage in CSR practices? I think it, so I'm actually really jumping into this and diving into this. Like, yeah, so those IBM, for example, mm -hmm. it speaks up about LGBTQ issues here in the US. It also does so in China. It's an open question. Does it do so in um, a religiously conservative country that's um, in its portfolio? That's mm -hmm. data. That's a search that I will be engaging in in the coming months. And I think what this can teach us, or I hope to see, is that firms are this notion of political ideology, their beliefs about the world, they're actually pretty firm across countries. That's something that we just don't know. 
we mm. assume that like, oh, it's a liberal leaning firm mm -hmm. here in the US. And we assume that because of the CEO, the top management team, the employees, these values are all holding. We assume that in all contexts, we don't know that actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have the data. There haven't been studies out there that would right. look at what McDonald's does across the globe in terms of immigration or forced migration, what IBM and others do when it comes to LGBTQ rights, when it's gun control, et cetera. Um, I'm hoping that we do learn. I would hope that firms are <laughs> consistent in their rhetoric and in their practices. Um, right. But I can imagine that because we often start talking about these issues here in the U.S. I'm a quote, fairly democratic, fairly liberal country relative to other governments. Once we start talking about um, governments where it's more authoritarian, some would say, mm -hmm. um, do those practices and does that corporate rhetoric hold up? Why, if you're an American firm, speak out? I'm wondering, I'm curious if, IBM has said anything about, you know, the Hong Kong protests, for example, right. and right. a number of firms were actually pretty silent, although they might speak out against other issues related to China. Why on a particular issue you say something relative to not, and so that's what I'm hoping to explore. Right. So can you point to any instances where, you know, there is what looks like a situation a company is behaving in a way that is actually quite responsible for the context. And there isn't a particularly strong motivation or impetus for them to do so. Like, I'm wondering if there are instances where it seems like corporations are kind of moving past the fluff and are really doing something or taking a stand in a particular situation and not necessarily just being responsive to the cultural conversation at the time. Yeah, it's, there aren't that, many <laughs> um, that come to mind. I think to me, that gets that this notion of our firms doing things altruistically. Mm -hmm. um, I do think that unfortunately, many firms are speaking to their consumer base and their employee base. And so right. I, I, think it's, I think it's tough to actually tease out motivation in all right. honesty when it comes to yeah. just looking at corporate statements and not actually being like behind the scenes, what's leading to the corporate statement? What's the, is there a tension? Is there disagreement um, when it comes to, this is what we're going to say about this issue. And so I think about firms stepping up on abortion rights. There might be, I think there's a post that 118 firms immediately stepped up, said something, did something. U.S. and non-U.S. firms about this issue here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I think there may have been some CEOs, some top management teams um, who are comprised of women. It's like, this is wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, this is problematic. And so we need to do something about it um, from an altruistic perspective. Um, I, I'd be curious to see if they said something here, how that's been elsewhere. Um, yeah. One other question I was wondering um, is, what's the role of government, you think? Um, <laughs> we were talking before about how India requires about 2% um, of its company's annual revenues to go to CSR. And this is kind mm -hmm. of like a really interesting concept, actually, one that obviously hasn't been replicated here in the United States. But right. I wonder, like, 
do you feel like governments have uh, a responsibility to um, help kind of nudge companies, um, even through, man- I guess it wouldn't be a nudge if it's a mandate, but either through nudges um, or mandates to um, facilitate CSR? Yep, I'm completely fine with mandates. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, sometimes you see firms step up because of employee activism or activism from non-governmental organizations or some shareholders or just the CEO top management team saying we need to do this. Mm. Um, but that's those are those instances are few and far in between. Mm-hmm. If we actually had government saying, like, no, you need, we're gonna penalize you. Um, if you stay in this controversial country. So I think about um, in South Africa and Myanmar, uh, Burma, as some consider it, you know, military government um, ruling there for a couple of decades. You had some cities in both of those country contexts saying, we're going to penalize you. We're going, unless you actually engage in social practices there. Hmm. Um, or unless you leave, ideally you leave, but if you're not gonna leave, let's go ahead and do something. If not, we're gonna penalize you. I do see benefit and value of those types of initiatives. Um, and those typically at, is at the city level, more local or subnational level. I do think that we need national governments to actually step up and say, firms need to do more environmentally, socially, Will we see that? <laughs> um, that's the, the next question. I'd say we have a number of governments that are beholden to corporations right. and a number of politicians who are beholden to corporations. So I think that's uh, part of the reason why we don't see it because you know you might lose a might lose your base, you might lose funding. And I think we do see the you've seen the implications of some like firms taking a stand, you know, on their own, but then facing governmental backlash. And so I think it's as much as we want to see government step up, uh, there has, there has been criticism of the law in India. Like, was that enough? You know, 2% is that, uh, can we be doing more? Um, but I do think it's a step in the right direction. That's my personal belief. So you're telling me that corporations would lobby the government to not mandate CSR? <laughs> they, you know, if we could actually get data on lobbying practices, like strong and clear data, um, I've, <laughs> I've also looked at the notion of co- covert corporate political activity. Uh-huh. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there is some lobbying going on. And there's this notion of, well, firms will say, will voluntarily do this as an mm. industry mm. Um, so as to buffer against any governmental mandates. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that notion of self-regulation, you know, individually or collectively um, within an industry or across a group of industries, I think we see more of that um, so yeah. as again to buffer against. Yeah. Real, real quick, are there any, um, you know, governments or municipalities that you think do the CSR nudging or mandates well? Good question. I, <laughs> I have not come across any, to be honest. It's okay. off the top of my head. 
And that's probably because I'm thinking about particular issues. Mm, I see. Like what are, like what are governments doing about, you know, police, policing in the States, for example, that's immediately, that's where my mind went to when you raised that question. I'm like, Ooh, I don't see (laughs) um, anything happening. I would say historically, um, you know, cities in California are probably <laughs> um, at the forefront of, of a mm. lot of initiatives, um, at least in the U.S. context, right. where I think about the city of Berkeley and others, like, again, penalizing firms. And I think right. that's just like the, the culture of Berkeley, you know, right. Right. And, and California in general. But beyond that and across different issues, not as much. I think what we often see is um, governments engaging or in controversial actions. Right. Um, and then some firms deciding to respond to that, um, right. take a stance against those controversial actions. Got it. I wonder, is there anything um, that you feel like is a common misconception that people have about um, CSR, either the way in which um, you know, corporations are or are not effective, uh, or the way in which um, hmm. you know they cl- they claim certain things um, and the impacts that they have. Like I, as someone who don't study this, um, I have a bunch of very naive assumptions about you know what corporations say and what they do. And to me, I take <laughs> I, I take a relatively, admittedly, pessimistic standpoint yeah. um i mean maybe that's that's justified maybe it's not but i'm wondering are there common misconceptions that people have and can you clarify some yeah and i think the main one is is right there and i understand the pessimism <laughs> yeah like <laughs> uh, when it comes to corporations what they're doing what they're saying um i think it largely stems from well what are we expecting firms to do and are we expecting them to be the end-all, be-all saviors of particular groups, demographics? Um, some would say that's not the role of corporation. It's really the role of the government to actually provide for uh, different groups. Now, sometimes firms step in and fill those voids or fill those gaps. But I think that's something that we have to talk more about what is the actual role of firms. Mm. And then we have to look at, well, what are some firms doing? And I was just engaging in activity with my students in my undergrad class last week, we were talking about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So 17 goals to ensure that we live in a better society. So increasing access to education, reducing gender inequality, um, reducing poverty um, holistically. And there's this initiative, the Business for 2030 initiative. So these these SDGs, these goals, by 2030, we want to have these metrics met. Well, what role do businesses have in it? And so I have my students like pull up their laptops, pull up their tablets and look and see some of the actions of these firms. So like, what is IBM doing in the realm of education? What is McDonald's doing in the realm of water? And in a lot of cases, the firms are 
focusing on actions and activities that are related to their operations, their day-to-day business operations. Mm-hmm. They could go beyond that. Like, yes, McDonald's wants to speak out on gender and women's empowerment. They could do so. It's very much beyond their you know, corporate <laughs> focus. Um, I think it's important for us to at least recognize that some firms are doing things and that there is still some value. There are still communities that are getting value. Um, if IBM decides to train, you know, 400,000 people across different regions, different continents, we can criticize IBM for a lot of things, <laughs> but they're still providing value to a particular group. And I think for me, I, when it comes to like misconceptions of our firms actually doing anything, yeah, they're doing something. It may We may not think of it as enough, but I think from the people who are actually receiving the materials, the training, the benefits, the finances, that is something. Yeah. And so I would just, I understand the, the pessimism. Mm-hmm. I'm not the most optimistic person when it comes <laughs> to what our firm's going to do. I can put that, I can be blunt about that. Yeah. But I do want to acknowledge that firms are some firms, not all firms. So we know that they're just some purely controversial firms out there who don't do anything. Uh-huh. But some firms are <laughs> um, engaging. Having established our pessimistic outlook towards yeah. some of these CSR activities, <laughs> can we muster some optimism? I want to ask yeah. you, like, what in the space of CSR are you most hopeful about? Yeah, I definitely think there is some optimism. I think it largely stems from the fact that we see a lot of activism related Mm. to social issues. And because we live in this Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, social media world, a lot of things are on display and information moves so quickly. So you can Mm. boycott a firm and get a lot of people behind it very quickly, which forces the firm to actually be responsive. Mm -hmm. And so that excites me. And I think about firms taking these stances on very polarizing issues that we've talked about thus far in our conversation, actually being able to look and see what the progress is, is pretty exciting to me. Like, yeah, I'm not expecting firms to solve racism tomorrow or ever, but I am expecting them to create awareness, um, create opportunities, and we'll see what that leads to in the next few years. So I'm very much excited to see where we are from an issue to issue perspective and then more holistically, I do think that um, things will be in a better place. Still we'll have the, the issues, unfortunately, right. in the US and beyond. Um, I don't think the issues are going anywhere, but I do think that we will see some progress from a corporate perspective. What do you think is the biggest hurdle to that progress? Well, we have a lot of entrenched individual biases. Hmm. Uh, I can, we talk about individuals, um, political ideologies. Uh, and, oh, and I think it's really tough to convince me if I consider myself as a liberal and I want to talk about a liberal issue, it's, it might be really difficult to convince a conservative to agree with me and vice versa. You know, 
Mm-hmm. And so there's the notion that is racism a thing in the U.S. or globally? Well, I would say yes, it is. Uh, there are folks who do not believe that and will not believe that as much as I can right. make an argument about it, as much as I can present evidence, as, as much as I can sit them down with someone who says they had experienced this right. <laughs> in a different context. Um, so I do think that we're coming up against entrenched biases that are generational right. in nature. And I do think that corporations can just move the needle a little bit. Governments can move the needle a little bit, um, but we are individuals and we have agency. And a lot of, uh, I'd say here in the US and a lot of countries in the world, I know unfortunately that's not the case in all places, um, but I do think that <laughs> I'm, I have a, I know I have a very hard time convincing some folks of believing me and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I can admittedly say I can be set in some of my ways. Right. Um, so this has been uh, an awesome conversation. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I've, I've I actually, so. yeah, yeah I, I think so. I, I feel like I've actually learned a lot. Um, and I, it feels like these are good things to like remind myself about. Like, I appreciate that. We yeah. go about our day-to-day lives, you know, oftentimes, you know, buying a lot of things and corporations are all around us. Um, but it definitely feels important to kind of come back to, you know, our role as consumers who are purchasing things from, I mean, many and very powerful companies and the relationship we have with them, I think is really important. Um, I want to ask a question um, that I've never asked on this podcast, but I have heard Mm -hmm. a lot of other podcasts and they ask it and it relates to a particular message. Um, And so Tim Ferriss does this on his podcast. He asks, (laughs) you know, if there was something, you know, that you would put on a billboard, one message from your work or your um, your life uh, as informed by your work that put out there and have other people see, what would that message be? Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I say from my work, I think it is important to recognize that some firms are trying <laughs> at the very least. And I think it's because I think before getting into looking at CSR, I was more pessimistic. I'm a bit more optimistic now. Uh, the, the needle has moved for me. And so there are corporations that are out here engaging in actions that are for the benefit of society, be it for altruistic reasons or for profit-seeking reasons. I am okay with a group or groups benefiting from the resources that corporations give. And I think we hopefully can acknowledge that. And Tied to that, I think it's just important for us to be aware mm-hmm. of what is going on in society, what firms are saying, are doing, or not, the lack thereof. And even engaging in this conversation, it's made me think about, am I a consumer activist? I probably should be. I talk about it <laughs> from time to time in my classes, and it's definitely come up. And, and I hope to see um, more consumer activism. Actually, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be even more cognizant of my purchasing behaviors. Maybe underlying, there are some (laughs) decisions I make based upon things I see. Um, Maybe I am, you know, (laughs) subtly a consumer activist, but I think consumer activism is a very powerful 
tool that we as individuals have at our disposal. So I know I said a few things there, a few messages. I apologize, <laughs> but the the more the merrier. Ways. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think that you know this has offered uh, a really nice perspective and is you know um, offering me an opportunity to reflect on some of my own purchasing behaviors as well. So um, yeah. Ish Minifi, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been awesome chatting with you today. Happy to do so, Pete, anytime.